0: Welcome to the Grange Point where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. So after a large disaster, what happens to all the wildlife in the area? We've seen our fair share of disasters recently, but when large incidents like Fukushima or Chernobyl happen, what happens to the wildlife and the people in the surrounding areas? Do mass evacuations make the most sense or is remediation better? And how does wildlife move in and take over once humans have moved out? All this week and more, life after a disaster. Now you may recall all the way back in March 2011, the Tohoku earthquake and subsequent tsunamis that devastated large portions of Japan. In particular, the tsunami is also closely related to another major disaster that occurred in Japan at the same time, the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear disaster. Now, once the earthquake happened, the ground shook, well, that caused a lot of problems on the electricity grid of Japan, understandably. And the nuclear power plant in Fukushima, Daiichi, tried to shut down but it was then suddenly hit by a 14 meter tall tsunami that flooded the area, caused a lot of problems for the backup generators, and led to the overload, or meltdown, of three of the four reactors, three hydrogen explosions, and the release of the radioactive contamination from different units. Plus, then a whole bunch of radioactive water from the spent fuel pool started to leak out into the Pacific Ocean. Huge amounts of Water was contaminated and flooded out into the Pacific Ocean, along with a whole bunch of radioactive emissions emitted into the air. A 20 kilometre evacuation zone was set up around the reactor, and all told, around 154,000 people were evacuated from the surrounding communities. Surprisingly, and this is a testament to the nuclear safety regimes, even in a place as full of issues as TEPCO, the operator of that power plant, was, it was only still a result of one death attributed to this disaster directly, the nuclear disaster, not of course the tsunami and the earthquakes that had many hundreds of deaths. But related specifically to the nuclear disaster, there was only one death due to cancer attributed by the government panel. There were a lot of other injuries, 16 physical injuries due to the big explosions and a couple of workers taken to hospital due to radiation burns. But overall, the actual initial death toll from this disaster was pretty low. And that goes to show the lessons learned after Chernobyl were pretty well, taken on board by the nuclear industry to make these disasters safe. But one of the key things that the Japanese government did, aside from establishing a commission to investigate what caused this disaster, uh, the failure of all those units and controls that are meant to be in place, they established what is known as the Fukushima evacuation zone. Now this is this again, this area around 20 kilometer radius around the Fukushima Daiichi plant that was cordoned off from basically normal human life. Everyone from this area was moved out and now almost 10 years on from this disaster scientists are going back into that disaster zone or former disaster zone to be more accurate to investigate and analyze what happens when humans just leave an area on mass we talk about one hundred and fifteen thousand people who evacuated this zone gone moved out now that's a huge amount of people just displaced which is a big issue but it also means that there's now a whole bunch of empty space, empty buildings that was once inhabited by humans and is now inhabited by other creatures. And that is what exactly what researchers from the U.S. Geological Survey, along with researchers from University of Georgia and researchers from Fukushima University, have been studying through extensive series of a long-term study with camera traps of all of the wildlife that has now moved in where humanity has moved out. And all of this was published in the Journals of Frontiers in Ecology and Environment. Now, a lot of this research was was performed by James Beasley, Thomas Hinton, as well as researchers like Kaokuda Okuda from Fukushima University. Now, this team has also done other work looking at other formula evacuated areas after nuclear disasters, for example, like Chernobyl. And the study of what's happened to the plants and the wildlife around Chernobyl has been a very fascinating area of biological research. It's also turned into a bit of a tourist trap now after the airing of the Chernobyl miniseries on television. But the researchers were investigating the idea of life moving in when humanity moves on. And the results from this study are quite staggering. Over 267,000 photos of different types of wildlife. From more than 20 species, including wild boar, Japanese hare, macaque monkeys, pheasants, foxes, and the tanuki, so raccoon dog, and all different parts of the landscape. Plants are growing, animals are moving in. And what they've shown is that there's lots of species that are now abundant, not just a few species here and there, but really thriving through this Fukushima evacuation zone region, despite the presence of some radiological contamination. And that is really interesting to think about. And the species that have moved in are the ones that are normally often in conflict with humans, particularly wild boar. And they've been, you know, captured running around the human evacuated zones. And this is because there's now a gap in the ecosystem as a space for these creatures to move into without the presence of humans in the ecosystem well it leaves space for other creatures to move in and we've seen this time and time again there's plenty of species that have adapted to human presence in an environment such as the urban fox but these are now thriving because well there's no humans around to contest with them so they set up these cameras around 106 different sites in three different zones Uh, the three different zones are based on the amount of radiation in the area for example where humans are prohibited from going due to the high level contamination where humans are restricted from going due to intermediate level of radiological contamination, or where somewhere humans are inhabited, where humans are allowed to be, uh, but there's very low levels of background radiation. It's still a warning area, but people are allowed to be there. So, in these three different zones, which are in line with the Japanese government designations for them, they captured all kinds of creatures over a 120 day period. Lots and lots of photos of wild boar, unsurprisingly, pretty easy to take with a remote camera trap because they're large enough to trigger it, but most of those were actually taken in the uninhabited areas. For example, of the 46,000 images of wild boar, 26,000 of those were taken in the uninhabited area, the area without humans, and the 13,000, so half that in the restricted area, and only 7,000 in the inhabited zones, which means that, yes, the wild boar have moved into the area, but they're sort of hiding out in this high radiation area quite happily, doing very well. Now, of course, this study doesn't make any assessment on the physiological health of these creatures and the impacts that the radiation is having on them, mostly because it is a remote camera study. However, it does go to show that there's a large thriving population there, which wouldn't be possible if all these creatures were dying off very rapidly from cancer. Now, what's interesting is that the evacuated areas and the non-evacuated warning areas provide a nice control group, which is particularly important because the evacuated area around Fukushima involves mountainous hilly districts as well as large coastal areas so you get a huge swath of different type of environments which mean different creatures that's why you see so many things from monkeys and pheasants to wild boars and foxes what they did notice is that you could see in some creatures that they had a clear change in the human areas and their behavior to the non-human areas for example wild boar diurnal and have moved to being more nocturnal in the human areas whereas in the unconstrained areas of the human excluded areas well they're doing fine during the daytime. But with this control group of the human inhabited areas, they could see that despite the radioactive risks, these creatures are thriving and flourishing in the formerly urban environments. Now, this is pretty fascinating to think about. The impact of humans leaving an area does mean that wildlife can move in, much like any other ecosystem where all of a sudden there's a gap in the food web, whether one creature at the top or the bottom is taken out, can lead to all kinds of strange changes. That's exactly what's happening in this instance here. But we can use it to better understand the implications for human inhabitation of an area as well. You can, we can change actually the behaviours of these species by having humans around or not around and shows that these creatures can be very adaptive to what was otherwise a pretty devastating disaster. As you can see in the photos from Fukushima and from Chernobyl, life does continue on around these disaster areas and the absence of humans makes it actually very easy for the animal populations to restabilize themselves pretty rapidly all of this is published in the journal frontiers in ecology and environment along with many thousands of fantastic photos of all different kinds of creatures almost wild zoo around this area and i encourage you to check out Now, the evacuation zone that we just spoke about at fukushima was created by the japanese government as a response to making sure that as many people as possible were safe from potential high levels of radioelectrical contamination in the atmosphere in particular what they were worried about and the japanese government has also gone to great lengths to create an ice wall and seal up all of the contamination areas to prevent water seeping out into the pacific ocean and all of this is incredibly good work but some researchers from warwick university manchester university university of london Have been investigating the idea of evacuation as a concept based on risk and they're using this for a very good reason. Fukushima and Chernobyl provide great examples, case studies if you will, for how to plan for and respond to disasters and what is useful about this is you actually have data for the radiation levels in the long term now. So they can look back on these accidents like Chernobyl and like Fukushima to investigate what areas are safe compared to the predictions and the models. Because when people evacuate an area, they have to do so based on the best available information at the time, based on what they predict the radiation might be in the area, or what the long-term exposure risks may be as well. And they use and developed an idea called J-value, judgment value which balances the cost of any safety measure against the increase in life expectancy it achieves. Again, this is an average life expectancy increase, of course, for a population cohort, not an individual level. But it's a useful tool because it allows people like these chemical and process safety engineers to help justify or explain or explore which safety measures to implement. Because in everything in safety, it's all about trade-offs. What can we trade off here to achieve this here? Yes, we can make something incredibly safe, but it is also then very expensive and not practical. And at some point it stops doing what you want it to do. Now in the Fukushima Daiichi incident, even after about five years after the accident, of the 111,000 people who initially evacuated, 85,000 of them did not return, moved out and will not be returned. Now that's a very large evacuation number, which creates, as we spoke about, this huge empty areas for the animals to live in. But what is the actual risk there for those people? and what? comparing to other incidents. Now, in the case of Chernobyl, the J-value method suggests evacuation when nine months or more of life expectancy would be lost due to radiation exposure. That would mean 31,000 people would have been evacuated and maybe 72,000 if you apply a bit more of a stricter criteria. But in fact, around 116,000 people were evacuated after Chernobyl, with a second relocation introduced in 1990, a couple of years after. But when the researchers applied the analysis method, what they found is around the 220,000 people that were evacuated after Chernobyl, in total over the long period of time, only around 900 of those would have faced a loss of life expectancy of about three months. Now, that may seem as a pretty cold, hard statistic, but it's, it's what these scientists have to do to evaluate risk- on a macro level. And the research suggests if you use this kind of balancing criteria, only a fraction, about 10 to 20% of the total evacuated peoples would have needed to leave their homes to protect them from radiation. Otherwise, there wouldn't actually have been a substantive loss of life expectancy due to the radiation exposure. Sure, the exposure is high, but not to the point of actually dropping life expectancy. Talking maybe a three to nine months drop in life expectancy for living in the area and the reason is massive relocation is very expensive and disruptive to people's lives a better tool would be of course re- remediation which makes the area safe for habitation rather than trying to just purely uproot an entire town city you name it and and move it somewhere else now for comparison because we're talking about this three to six month drop in life expectancy the average resident of some of manchester lives around three years less than their counterpart in North London. And this is due to a whole number of conditions, but a lot of it is to do with environment. And now this is pretty shocking to think about, but actually when you consider the impact of air pollution, it has great health risks on a large population, which makes people less likely to live on average longer, which one of the reasons why cities like London have gone to such great measures to implement truck bans, diesel bans, and very high levies on cars going into the city mostly because of exactly these fumes in highly dense population areas leading to significant losses in life expectancy. So the Fukushima and Chernobyl were certainly a devastating instance with, and will be very clear, very serious health issues for those directly impacted. But there's also great health risks from other issues as well. Now these these researchers were looking at a, a fictional scenario as well of maybe one of the nuclear reactors in England having a major issue or a meltdown. Now using a strict safety criteria they found that really if one of these reactors in the south of England went down well it would only need to relocate at maximum around 620 people rather than evacuating huge swathes of the countryside and temporary evacuation may be necessary while remediation work is carried out but realistically most people would be able to return to their homes in the surrounding areas provided remediation work was done and that would be the more cost effective method than evacuating whole towns. And this is an interesting thing to think about. As with everything related to risk, it's very hard to judge what is the right risk decision for people on an individual level. And you may decide after such an issue that you want to leave. And it doesn't mean that there won't be outlier cases, but on a whole, on a macro level for a population cohort, it's far cheaper and more efficient to remediate and let people live in the area as opposed to relocating huge numbers of people, hundreds of thousands of them from an impacted area. Because the impact of health from radiation exposure from these large disasters isn't actually that high compared to other exposures people are exposed to all the time that we as a society tolerate because it's less in your face and harder to see, like air pollution. Some interesting research published in the Process and Safety Environmental Protection Journal from the University of Bristol, University of Manchester and University of London. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, The Green Point. This week we've looked at life after disaster, how it moves in and takes over humanly inhabited areas, and when it makes sense to evacuate and when it makes sense to remove. Our ending theme was composed by Audio and Addicts. Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.